You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm very well. Glad to hear that. Let me introduce us. Uh, I'm, I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You are Daniel Levy. And for one thing, you're a longtime friend of mine. But uh, you're also president yeah. of the of the U.S. Middle East Project, which we'll talk about. Um, and in that capacity, I guess you not so long ago testified before the U.N. Security Council. People can Google that if the following conversation doesn't uh, satisfy them. Now, you are a longstanding uh, student of Israeli politics, Israeli geopolitics, um, and in particular of uh, Israel-Palestine issues. In fact, I think you were a couple of decades ago involved in negotiations, Israel-Palestine negotiations. Am I misremembering or? No, no, you, you, you're, you're correctly remembering. Um, it stretches a bit further back than that. I, I was um, actually a negotiator under Rubin in the so-called Oslo II, Oslo B Accords in the mid-90s and then the very beginning of the noughties uh, at the end of 2000, 2001 under then Prime Minister Barak, uh, this time as a political appointment, I was on the negotiating team at Taba um, in the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. Okay, I definitely want to talk about that before we're done. So there's a lot going on in Israel. First of all, there's this kind of political crisis that presumably everyone's at least dimly aware of. It led to massive demonstrations, which, if you correct for like population size, are bigger than any demonstrations have ever been in America by a long shot. Um, and it, that that seems to have gone kind of dormant because uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu kind of kicked the can down the road. I assume this is going to resurface, though, and going to have to come to a head one way or another. I want to uh, talk about that. There's also, you know, regional issues. Uh, Israel doesn't get that much attention, but they're involved in a more or less ongoing conflict in Syria. At least uh, they stage attacks uh, not infrequently. Um, and uh, there's, there's of course, the tension with Iran, the nuclear issue. And then the Israel-Palestine thing uh, seems to have been heating up. Uh, and, uh, you know, there seems to be, I think a lot of people think there's more danger than there's been in a long time of of a third intifada that that uh, might well be a very violent one. Um, I want to I want to talk about as much of this as we can. Uh, I, I guess uh, why, why don't you start by situating us in the aforementioned political uh, crisis? I called it. Of course, the basic idea is we have a, a pretty far right coalition right now in Israel. They want to implement legislation that would rein in the judiciary which has been a thorn in their side for some time. And and separate from that, of course, uh, Netanyahu, I guess, is under indictment and would like to have a little more leverage over the judiciary, as one does when one is indicted. Um, and, uh, and, and so there have been these huge demonstrations against that initiative. And then it all kind of left the U.S. media radar screen uh, when when uh, there was this kind of decision to put things off for a few weeks or something. So where do we stand on that? And, and feel free to let me know if I got anything just flat out wrong. Uh, no. Where we stand is it. I mean, the thing that that, that perhaps I'd, I'd just make sure people are aware of 
that um so we were coming up to the 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 Jewish holidays of Passover actually the parliament goes on recess there the the Israeli Knesset and it, there was a question would Netanyahu and his coalition try and rush this through before that holiday before that recess uh, they didn't Netanyahu stepped back there was uh, an issue with the defense minister actually saying okay um I'm going to resign if you try and push this through. There was a, a day of, of, of massive action, including a general strike, which the business sector joined as well. Um, and Netanyahu pulls back and says, well, we're going to put this on pause. What has happened subsequently is, is actually the demonstrations have resumed and at more or less the same level of intensity. So as you acknowledge, while this is off the kind of Western media pages, um, the issue is very much alive. And what you've actually had is the right-wing force. Although I have to pause here to say I wouldn't call the demonstrators left-wing forces necessarily. And we'll perhaps come back to what's actually going on here. But the forces supportive of the coalition and of the reform have now themselves also taken to the streets. And a feature of the first 14, 15 weeks w- were that the streets were exclusively owned by those opposing the reform. And you've now had a very large demonstration. You had a slightly smaller demonstration in support of the reform, but now you've had a very large demonstration. One of the things that, that I think people are looking at here is just how, just how ugly could this get on the streets? Um, has there been violence when yet it, between the between the two groups? Minimal. Mm-hmm. What there has been is a is 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 occasional clashes between uh, the the kind of state instruments of repression, if you like, the police uh, and some of the demonstrators. What you also have is that there is a strong confluence. There's a strong. Uh, overlap between those supporting the reform and those who take a hard line uh, on uh, the hardest line, let me say, on Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. And so in a way, they would target the protesters less than they would just take out and vent their anger on Palestinians. So people may remember, and it's they may remember it partly because it's unusual for the term pogrom to be used in Western media when it comes to Israeli treatment of Palestinians. So there was this settler, settler militia, essentially, uh, descending on the Palestinian village Hawara uh, in the northern West Bank. And there were some horrific scenes coming out of that. But just to step back very briefly, one of the things that's going on, as you say, is the Supreme Court, the judicial uh, capacity for legislative review, the judicial system has been seen as an obstacle to three things. Because it's coming from three directions. I would say the most important driving force behind this in terms of that camp is that they have been seen as, a, as, as defending the rights of people whose rights shouldn't be defended, first and foremost, Palestinians. Now, you'd ask a Palestinian whether they're a Palestinian inside Israel who has Israeli citizenship but lives under a regime of inequality and structural discrimination, let alone Palestinians living under Israeli occupation beyond the formal lines that are recognized as sovereign Israel, let alone Palestinians living as refugees who are unable to return, 
you ask them and they would say, hell no. The Supreme Court has, has, has been a very low bar, but let's look at what has been allowed. The Supreme Court has allowed relentless settlement expansion and all the bad things that have happened to us. So, so we will appeal to the Supreme Court, but we do not see the Supreme Court as the upholders of international law, let alone fairness and equality. But that's one direction it was coming from. Secondly, Netanyahu has his own um, legal issues. You've mentioned that. That's very important. The prime minister is on trial. Uh, as you say, he clearly wants leverage there. Thirdly, there is an important part of the coalition that is the ultra-Orthodox population, the Haredi population, and they have their own reasons, which slightly link to the first one on Palestinians, but primarily the, where the Supreme Court has intervened more actively often is in issues of, for instance, the enlistment or the non-enlistment, which is the case of that population into the military and the arrangements which allow for their non-enlistment. And the Supreme Court has kind of called to uphold uh, some kind of system of equality there. And that's a major problem for that community. The other thing that I would just note when people who, who you know, have seen these pictures, have seen you know, even American politicians weigh in on this, um, is that the idea that Israel's democracy was doing just fine. And then along came Netanyahu, and he suggested this radical overhaul. And oh my gosh, the pristine, laudable Jewish democratic state and its fabulous upholding of, of values which we should all adhere to is under threat. That ignores a pretty huge gap in the story, which is this is not, of course, a democracy for those under permanent occupation, those who do not have their basic democratic rights realized, Palestinians, those inside Israel who are treated as second-class citizens. So you have this disconnect between a narrative of democratic state doing just great, along comes a hardline politician, Versus what you've seen in, for instance, the reports of Blue Chip International Human Rights Groups, Amnesty Human Rights Watch, what you've seen in Israeli human rights organizations, B'Tselem, all actually saying this is this regime meets the de legal definition of apartheid. So this is a huge disconnect, and it's also why you haven't seen almost entirely um, the participation of twenty percent of Israel's citizens, the Palestinian citizens of Israel in these demonstrations. Of course, some people have taken part, but I think it's important just to set out that story. Yeah. The, um, let me ask you to drill down on the one point a little. Now, when I last saw you in person, it was in Israel and in the West Bank. Uh, we were on a, uh, I guess you might call it a not your, not your standard tour of Israel that Americans take. Uh, it was, uh, it was, we were seeing parts of the situation that aren't aren't shown to say your average congressperson uh, or, or even journalist who goes on kind of a subsidized trip there. And I think you were with us in Hebron. You've probably been there enough that you may not recall the specific instance. But Hebron is, you know, in the occupied territory. And, and, and it, it was a good example of just it looking 
very much like apartheid in the in in the sense that okay uh israeli jews can walk along this nice paved street palestinians have to walk along that kind of what looks like a rocky path up there you know there are a lot of things in, in the once you're in the west bank you, you know the you you uh whether or not it's strictly speaking apartheid i'll leave to uh a debate I'll leave to people who who know more about apartheid as it existed in South Africa, but you see the obvious parallels. The but what about uh, the thing that you alluded to, which is the situation of Palestinian citizens of Israel within Israel proper? Those two human rights reports uh, you mentioned, or I guess three, is it is it uh, counting uh, all told uh, that that have that have deemed Israel an apartheid state? Um, they, I, I think some or all of those included in that, the treatment of uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, which is surely much better than the treatment of Palestinians in the West Bank. And I'm a little unclear on what aspect of that treatment it is that is most egregiously discriminatory. I just don't know the territory that much. So what, what would you, if you had to cite one or two things that the Palestinians in Israel proper are unhappy about what would what would those be? Well, I mean, just to acknowledge that the designation of apartheid, either in a legal sense, and I think the important thing about those reports is that they were not trying to say, "Look, this is how Israel is like South Africa back in the day." Mm-hmm. What they were saying is there is. There is a legal rubric. There is a, 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 a an internationally recognized crime, the crime of apartheid. Does Israel meet the definition of that crime? It does. Here's why. That case has been made by Palestinian organizations for some time. I think what was new in the last few years, and it's important to just recognize uh, the work done by those Palestinian groups, and in fact, Al-Haq, uh, the leading Palestinian Human rights organization, which was um, designated a, a, a terrorist organization, not by Netanyahu's government, but by the previous supposedly more moderate government. Anyway, they have made that designation. They've come out with a recent report that, that revisits that. You then had the Israeli groups, Betzelem and Yeshdin, and then the international organizations, Amnesty Human Rights. Not all of them have applied the designation to inside Israel proper, the situation. But I think what you had, and I think that's what tipped it over the edge for some in terms of applying the definition internally, is a law passed in 2018 called the Nation State Law, which defined uh, the exclusive collective uh, ability to have sovereignty and collective rights to uh, the Jewish community in Israel. Where that manifests itself is, for instance, um, you can have a, an urban area, a city, a, a settlement. Settlement, not in the term that is usually applied uh, for what's going on in the occupied Palestinian territories, where the criteria for being able to purchase a home are premised on your ethnic designation. So you could say the character of this settlement would be changed if this Arab family, and actually, that happened. Arab families would apply to live in new areas being built. Uh, no new Palestinian Arab town has been built inside Israel. Hundreds of new Jewish settlements have since 1948. And 
Um, and it was considered legitimate legal grounds that, for, for withholding, for instance, the residency of Palestinians. You have national institutions which hold state land in Israel for the promotion of Jewish settlement inside Israel proper. So that's another form of the kind of structural uh, discrimination face. Mm -hmm. There are villages, Palestinian areas that are still not recognized, still not linked to state infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So much of uh, the way that the two welfare states that are most prominent inside Israel, a welfare state for the ultra-Orthodox and a welfare state for the settlers, the way that is done the way that military service accords you certain benefits, but you can also get those benefits if you're a member of the ultra-Orthodox population that doesn't serve in the military, because then you come under another kind of set of rubric that you're studying in a religious seminary, and those are denied to the Palestinian. So there are structural ways of allocating resources which ensure that those can be legally denied to, um, to the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel. And one has to remember, this is not new. From 48 to 66, after it's the 75th anniversary, both of the uh, creation establishment uh, of the state of Israel and of the Nakba, uh, catastrophe mm -hmm. uh, in English for Palestinians, where there's this uh, mass migration, mass expulsion in the, uh, uh, in the 47 to 49 war. So, so, um, so from, just... then, from then, for the first 18 years of Israel, mm -hmm. those who, who weren't expelled, those who remained behind, live under military law. So it, this goes back into the, the, the beginnings of the state. So just to make sure I understand, it is the case now that within Israel proper, a Palestinian who is a citizen of Israel might say, I want to buy that house. And it might, in certain situations, it might be legal to say, sorry, you can't because you are a Palestinian. Bingo. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is... Uh, yeah, that's not great. Cut. Not um, great. No. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, to get back to your saying, like, you know, uh, you were suggesting that kind of the, the main, you know, the, the kind of center, center left of Israel has been aroused by this, what is seen and being depicted as a sudden new threat to Israeli democracy or something. You were suggesting uh, if you see it like that, you're kind of haven't been paying attention. If you see if you see it as a new threat, and I, I had been thinking about what is in some ways the flip side of this. I, I had been thinking like, okay, so what's going to happen is this is going to be resolved one way or the other. Netanyahu may well lose, and, and I mean you you know better than I, but suppose he loses and the judiciary is not restrained, and in a, the American media will say, ah, triumph. Uh, you know, we, we've uh, another threat to democracy uh, squashed. But, you know, well, first of all, as you note, there are all of these issues that will not have been addressed. But even beyond that, it seems to me that this current uh, threat, as it's seen to Israeli democracy, is really a, a product of kind of tectonic shifts or or fundamental underlying dynamics that are not going to go away. Now, you tell you know this a lot better than I do, but I gather that the ultra-Orthodox birth rate, for one thing, is higher than the birth rate in the rest of the country. And, and that's one reason uh, the ultra-Orthodox exert growing influence and so on. So, uh, you know, my sense is that it would not, that, that 
if if the forces of democracy prevail this time, that would not be grounds for really breathing a sigh of relief in any sense, both because, as you note, there are issues not yet addressed. I mean, let alone the, the occupied territory, which is let's I mean, we can get into that. But even even aside from that, as you note, there are uh, pretty egregious injustices that that are institutionalized. Um, but even aside from all that, it just seems like there's every reason to expect that things will get worse and not better uh, politically in terms of the balance of power. Am I wrong about that? No, it's it's a really important piece of that that picture that that it would behove people to be aware of when they when they dip into this and and, and dabble in the issue. First of all, I, I, I do just want to be fair that it the the banner headline coming out of the protests is save our Jewish democracy and it's either a genuine or a willful denial of what is the reality of that. But there are there are groups within that protest movement who know exactly what they're fighting for and it's not the status quo ante. It's not everything was fine and dandy. And so you will see the, the block against occupation, you will see anti-apartheid activists, you will see Palestinian Israelis, you will see those who are refusing to um, enlist for the military. So just to acknowledge that. The underlying dynamics are, are very much there and they are demographic but they are also political ideological. And the key demographic is the one that you've pointed out, which is when you have a community, the ultra-Orthodox, where the, I don't know the exact figure, but the birth rate is six, seven, eight kids a family, and everyone else is chugging along. Actually, Israel's birth rate is pretty high anyway, um, but at two, three. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, over time, your, your country looks different. Your population looks different. And that's that we're seeing there at each election. That block gets gets stronger just because of the demographics. At the same time. That community has become a little more nationalist, which they really weren't in the past. Now, by the way, this is the question of what happens with that community is a huge question that I don't think we'll go into here. But if that community stays out of the workforce, by and large, if that community is subsidized to spend their life in study, that is a recipe just for Israel's economic success to be challenged right there without anything else. And and that's something that will have to play out. And by the way, I I actually think there is uh, a really ugly side to to secular disdain and disgust and hatred towards that community that I want. I, I actually think there needs to be a social contract we need there needs to be a modus vivendi. People need to live together. People, we actually need to respect a, a lot of a lot of things that that community doesn't need to have trampled in terms of its traditions. But let me park that because the other thing that's going on is you see not only the growth numerically as a result of demographics and birth rate of the national religious community, but also the in, the the ideological shift that's taking place in Israel of of the the rightward drift. Um, and what, why I point that out is you mean what, even is within very, the do you mean even within the secular community there's something of a rightward drift or I would say yes I would say first of all the the 
Israeli society has become more religious, not just as a consequence of of, of differentials mm. in birth rates. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a a rightward drift across the board. I mean, if you just look at what kind of what constitutes the parliamentary opposition today, it is really right wing. When when the non Netanyahu coalition was in power for eighteen months, it was really hard to see a difference in their policies. Maybe now the coalition is so extreme. Um, that you see a bit of a difference, but they were doing, they were continuing and doubling down on some of the worst policies towards the Palestinians. And what you see there, I think, is the coming to fruition of what this level of impunity with which Israel is treated internationally, most especially by the US, what that does to the political debate inside. Um, inside Israel because the argument for Israelis was the argument made in the Israeli debate was you know what, whatever you think of the Palestinians, there are certain things we can't get away with and ultimately we're going to have to come to terms in one way or another with a compromise and um, um, the argument was because we won't be able to get away with it the world won't accept and what, especially the, the, the decade plus of Netanyahu in power from 2009 onward, what he managed to prove was not only can we get away with it, but we can get away with it and flourish and excel and expand our relations internationally. And actually, we can have an American administration that almost overtakes us from the right. And we can expand our relations in the region. And look what we've done with the UAE and Bahrain and others. So I think impunity has accelerated this drive to, um, to, to, to people saying, well, in that case, why not? Yeah. The, um, so, yeah, and this, and this is partly a product, I guess, of the, uh, of the mobilization of, of, you know, evangelical conservatives in in uh, America, and they're you know they're they're kind of joining the the Israel lobby, which two or three decades ago, I guess, would have been thought of as is mainly a Jewish thing. But um, you know, it's gotten to the point where uh, Netanyahu, I think, um, he he, I'm not sure how much he cares about the opinion of American Jews, because uh, you know the evangelical community uh, itself serves his purposes. So long as Republicans hold a considerable amount of power in um, in America. So uh, this is all. um, What would you say is, I guess, from your point of view, the most what is the most dire implication? Well, actually, I want to clarify one thing. So uh, as as for the ultra orthodox now, I had already I was already familiar with one seeming irony about uh, a kind of a loophole. accorded them, which is that they do not have to serve in the military. And I and I call that ironic because they are often advocates of uh, a pretty aggressive military posture in the occupied territories. And yet their kids, I gather, don't have to participate in that. Uh, and uh, there's that. But then you and tell me if I've got that wrong. But also you you mentioned that, I guess, do they have some kind of they get some kind of special exemption that that might liberate them from regular everyday work 
uh, I mean, some special, you know, subsidy that that allows them to not work because it's thought that uh, part of their their piety is to uh, spend their days in religious study or something. Is that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I want to be clear that traditionally the ultra orthodox parties have not been the drivers of uh, the most uh, militarist aggressive, egregious policies against Palestinians. Okay. Um, and in fact, historically, there was a real tension between, and this goes into theology, and I'll, I'll try and not go there, a real tension between the national religious camp mm-hmm. and the ultra-Orthodox camp. And the ultra-Orthodox camps actually, were actually self-defined as non-Zionist, and some mm-hmm. self-defined as anti-Zionist. And the position is, we don't hasten the coming of the Messiah. There can only be a Jewish sovereign return with the coming of the Messiah. And the national religious, well, we take, um, we make history. Uh, and so, for instance, the, people will probably be familiar with the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Temple Mount, uh, the, the Western Wall, these holy sites in the old city of Jerusalem. And the ultra-Orthodox actually have a prohibition on ascending the mount. So when you see this, these, these um, aggressive moves uh, by some of the national religious, that is opposed by some of the ultra-Orthodox. They, the, the, the settler camp did something really smart, was the, again, given the population explosion, there are huge housing issues for the ultra-Orthodox, uh, and many of them like to be in or around Jerusalem. And the settler camp, at some point, um, historically, 30 plus, uh, a quarter of a century plus years ago, um, designated two areas to be settlements for the ultra-Orthodox, which was one way of bringing them into the pro-settler camp. But, okay. but anyway, so they are not, things have changed, but they're not normally the ones who are pushing this. The historic deal was, and at the time when the state was established, it seemed to make sense uh, because it was a small number of people. And of course, one of the things that was lost uh, in, in Eastern Europe um, with the Holocaust was all these centers of Jewish learning those centers of Jewish learning would be rebuilt and kids would not have to go into the army and they would be subsidized to spend a lifetime in Jewish religious study okay. in these religious seminaries called yeshivas. Now, when it's hundreds of thousands, the, the ultra-Orthodox themselves understand this is unsustainable. Not everyone is learned in, in that uh, Talmudic uh, religious studies way, should spend their life there. They, and they are get, going into the workforce, but there is this provision where they are not only not serving in the army, but subsidized to be somewhere else when they should be doing their army service. And unsurprisingly, uh, that causes something of a backlash. I just want to brief, just to comment on, yes, the, the evangelical thing was a point of departure, was a point of departure in, um, in how the Israel issue plays out in U.S. politics. And Netanyahu was a very important uh, promoter of that, and it allows him to, as you say, uh, prioritize that often over uh, how the American Jewish community thinks. But I would you know, throw into the mix that um, it's not like the Democrats in power have been great either. Um, what you do not have is the legacy American Jewish organizations actually standing up for justice, peace, international law, holding Israel to account. And in recent years, you've, you've had Europe 
and for some time now, actually, being even more meek on this issue and the politi- those political divides playing out in Europe. And Israel has very effectively, and, and it's a conscious strategy, has very effectively um, created a conflation between what is a general, genuine concern about anti-Semitism and a misplaced collapsing of legitimate positions that are critical of Israel into this notion that this is anti-Semitic. And that, is, that has played very effectively, uh, not only in America, but especially uh, in a European domain. You also have um, the, the, the very divided, very weakened, uh, ineffective uh, Palestinian political institutional leadership. Um, and all those, I think, have, have, have created this, this reality today where, where I mean, I think it's moral hazard, actually, what you see on the Israeli side, because I don't think this ends well for Israel. Yeah, I mean, this is a question of mine, kind of, how does this end for Israel? Now, uh, you know, it was during that 2010 visit to Israel that I personally, uh, and, and the West Bank, I personally concluded that it was too late for a two-state solution at that point. I think more people are starting to say that. In fact, it seems like somebody prominent said it within the last uh, month or so. I forget who it was. Uh, maybe you know. I don't. I don't know. But um, there was he, a there was a piece in Foreign Affairs by oh, right. Shibita it was Hami, Mark it was, Lynch. It was it, in Foreign Affairs. That was, that the, was the fact. That was the important thing. That it was in Foreign Affairs, and it was said. Um, and you know that. Uh, so what's left is is if a two state solution is out of the picture, what's left is some kind of one state reality, presumably. Uh, now that could be an apartheid reality. Uh, you know, Israel just, uh, I guess, formally annexes the the West Bank. They've already more or less annexed East Jerusalem, which is also not theirs under international law. Um, and and they continue to not let the Palestinians there vote and, and not give them due process of law and so on. That's one kind of one state solution. And and some people would say de facto, that's what we got right now. It, it is in effect. I mean, Israel polices all, the entire area. They are ultimately, uh, you know, the the whole area is ultimately ruled by by Israel, uh, even if uh, some of the security is outsourced within certain constraints to Palestinian forces in the West Bank. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, well, I guess, uh, the, the, or at least the part of the spectrum most often talked about by kind of progressives would be some kind of uh, federation or something uh, of a binational, a unified uh, state that has two components that have a lot of autonomy. There's that. Um, and then there's just a straight up unified state where you let people vote and see what happens. That seems to me as a political matter. Uh, the least likely, maybe of all, but I don't. I don't know. I, 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 I'm outside of. And then I suppose, look, there's also ethnic cleansing, right? I mean, uh, in, in the very extreme place, there certainly are Israelis who would be totally happy if a lot of Palestinians moved from the West Bank to Jordan. And uh, you know, if ethnic cleansing is defined as making life so uncomfortable that people are tempted to move. Uh, you know, you could argue that life is already pretty uncomfortable, even though not many of them are are, are moving to Jordan. Um, so that seems to be me the menu of options. Maybe I've min- missed something, but I'm curious as to what you think is going to. Well, first of all, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? Secondly, what do you think is going to happen? 
Great. So it's a five-hour podcast. Um, <laughs> so I'm game. I'm game. Start... I think you're <laughs> the one with time constraints, Daniel. So, so well, let's start where you left off because it. I think this is a, a, a insufficiently explored part of what's going on, which you referenced ethnic cleansing, and you know, we're actually uh, with with some, some some friends in Israel. Um, and this will probably be in the public domain soon. Um, the, there has been a, a very significant increase, proliferation in threats of a second Nakba, threats of uh, ethnic cleansing and expulsion by serious Israeli political figures. By the way, the current Israeli Minister of Finance appeared at a seminar in France, uh, standing alongside a map where. Jordan and parts of Iraq and all the territories were part of that, the map of Israel that was behind him. Um, and one of the reasons that they are so keen on this judicial reform, those most keen on the reform are the hardline ethno-nationalist, religious, Zionist, pro-ethnic cleansers, is they, they assume that that would be something that the Supreme Court would throw hurdles up in the way of. But what's especially interesting to me is what motivates in, a, in, in one specific sense. Because, yes, they have tried to make Palestinian lives miserable and they have succeeded in making Palestinian lives miserable. And that has been going on not since yesterday, not since this coalition. That has been going on for a long period of time. And one of the ways of telling this story is, is actually the remarkable resilience of the Palestinians that there is so little out-migration, that ever since the Nakba, the Palestinians have internalized, we don't do that again. We don't voluntarily leave our land. And, and so I think one of the things you see is a real frustration on the right, that here we are, everyone, including much of our camp is telling us we're doing fabulously. We've won. The world no longer cares about Palestine. We've got relations in the Gulf with UAE, etc. America will not pressure us. We're doing better in Europe. We're expanding our relations elsewhere. Our economy is fantastic. The Palestinians are weak, divided, defeated. There are more of them than us, though. What's going on here? How come they're, they're all still here? They've not gone away. And I, and, and I think what you see is this trend towards accelerating a push for final victory, but you can't have a final victory while there are all these Palestinians still here. And, and so I think part of the tension today is between those who say, and by the way, that I think in that respect, the hard right have got, uh, are onto something that the rest of the Zionist camp is playing down, which is, does the rest of the Zionist camp really think the Palestinians are just going to accept this indefinitely? No, eventually you will have Another uprising, the first intifada was very different to the second intifada. The leadership will not be there forever. Palestinian civil society is organized. It, it, it has those links overseas. So there is a frustration. I, I would say the following. There was not going to be a just peace on offer in the 90s. There was not. But partition, I think, had its moment, 
then the Israelis would probably have been extremely wise to have seized that moment, been more generous in what was on offer, and got the deal where they got 78% of the land and the Palestinians 22%. And by partition, you mean, a, you mean a two-state solution? Two states, partition, 67 lines. What was being talked about when the PLO recognized Israel in the late, 80, in the late 80s, when Oslo starts, when Clinton puts his proposals forward? That moment seems to have passed. As you said, your visit 2010, uh, it, it looked pretty clear to you by then. I, I think one of the things that still holds it in place is that you, you do still have a formal position of the PLO uh, that endorses two states. I do not go too far into speculating um, what the post-partition dispensation might look like, because I think the condition that will need to be created in order for that to be on the agenda will require a fundamental transformation uh, on the Palestinian um, national movement leadership side, and they will have to come forward with a position of what it means. Because I mean, the other thing one has to recognize is if one, if one accepts a kind of settler colonialism framing, Jewish Israelis are not going anywhere. So you also, as a Palestinian, which is partly why two-state Palestinian nationalism remains a strong thing, but as a Palestinian, you will have to live in this space with those who have treated you in this way. And Palestinians will have to come forward with a, with a vision for what that looks like. Israel will have to be in a position where the, the continuing on this path is no longer a comfortable option. And the argument, of course, is now it's a comfortable option. In most instances, that is challenged in the security realm. You mean the, the, South the, the, you mean the idea that uh, you mean you mean Israel is deluded to think uh, there's a comfortable option there because, in fact, there will be threats to security or, or what? No, I'm saying right now, Israel doesn't ask itself that question. Right. Because it has life seems Life seems good. Uh, there's no intifada going on. And you, you get these, you know, almost ritual uh, conflicts, you know, the provocation uh, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which seems to have become almost an annual or semi-annual exercise uh, and an exchange of rockets and so on. But aside from that, it seems right. under control. Exactly. A, a decade and a half, Gaza is under siege. Uh, the, I, I do think the, the windows of quiet are shorter in mm -hmm. between these outbursts, and I think that will continue. May 2021, the Palestinians have called this the unity intifada because it's inside Israel as well. But anyway, the Israelis, by and large, look at this and say, security situation, manageable. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they look at it and say, internationally, this is going swimmingly. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is all going fine. Um, so I, I think the change that would need to, to happen in terms of Israelis themselves, A, seeing a different challenge come from the Palestinian side, but also looking around and say, okay, this is no longer working so well for us. I think it's in that constellation where Israelis are saying, we need a way out, and Palestinians are saying, we're leading a different struggle, then you will see what the kind of very likely beyond partition outcomes look like. But this then touches on 
how does one chip away, erode Israel's sense of impunity? And I'm increasingly, Bob, convinced that the idea that America will lead that is pure fantasy. And this only comes via a theme that you often talk about, which is multipolarity and a different, uh, the reality of new geopolitical power structures. And at what moment do we feel those in this particular conflict, in this particular part of the world? So wait, what do you think is the is the myth here that America will play? What role do you think it's commonly thought America will play that it won't play? Well, let me put it like this. The Palestinian default position, the official Palestinian default position is how do we get America on our side? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in fact, much of the campaigning around the world is, OK, how do we get the Americans to change their position? Mm -hmm. Now, that's understandable because America is the most powerful player on this issue, for sure, has been pretty much given a monopoly free pass on how it handles this issue. Um, but it is also fantastical, I think, to imagine that, much like with South Africa, by the way, America was the last to be on board, not the first. Mm. In fact, long after the, the transition to democracy, the ANC was still a designated terrorist organization in America. So I, I do not see salvation uh, coming from the U.S., but but I think the important thing is that the, the the switch has not yet happened, and I say this hesitantly and cautiously because I'm not Palestinian. But the switch has not yet happened, where the Palestinians themselves have a leadership and a mobilization, which basically says, "Great, our people should be organizing in America, our allies in America." There's some great polling coming out. Right now, let's be real. Where is it that we should focus our interests? Which state actors can align with us, especially in a shifting geopolitical reality? And where do we take that? You mean including states other than America? Which I'm, I'm saying precisely states, yeah. other, not including. That I'm saying you look yeah. at the map of political power in the world today, and you do. America should not be your port of call. The, the Palestinian president should not be waiting for his invitation to the White House. Their focus should absolutely be elsewhere. And it's interesting that the BRICS just had a summit in Cape Town, South Africa, at the foreign minister level, a hybrid meeting, I believe, uh, exclusively um, focused on the Middle East. And there's a, there's a, a communique coming out of that. And part of the communique is we will you know, to continue to meet regularly just to discuss the Middle East. That's, that's interesting. What China just did with Saudi Iran is interesting. It's a different reality that the Palestinian political leadership, I'm not talking about Palestinian thinkers and activists, but the Palestinian political leadership, I don't think are, are paying the kind of attention to that. But like I say, it's a political leadership that has largely um, been co-opted. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would think the problem with, with the Palestinians uh, putting all their hope in America is, first of all, just in terms of American domestic politics, that's a pretty steep hill to climb. And I'm not sure they appreciate that. But secondly, as you say, look, if if America did this thing, they're definitely not going to do. And tomorrow cut off all military aid to Israel and demanded that they give Palestinians full rights or something. I mean, I don't think I don't think Israel would 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 uh, bat an eye. I mean, it's a very prosperous country with a very, uh, very strong and advanced industrial base itself. and. They seem to have, if anything, a growing number of friends in the region. 
uh, including uh, some who used to be thought of as on the side of the Palestinians. You know, uh, this is partly, I guess, a, pro a product of the Abraham Accords. And uh, although that itself may have been to some extent just a formalization of uh, changes that were already underway. Um, but anyway, I guess so here I, yeah, here go I am going to disagree with you. No, okay. here I am really going to disagree with you. I, I precisely think that Israel only begins to ask itself the question of what the hell do we do on the Palestinian front when they perceive that there's a cost to continuing with this. And, and if America did what you suggested, I think that would, I, I want which to it won't, clear. but if it did, yeah, which it won't, which it won't, but which is why this is going to have to come from elsewhere. Because unless and until Israel feels there are consequences, until the cost-benefit equation for Israel's treatment of the Palestinians shift, as a result of things Palestinians do, but also as a result of things from the outside, as happened with parts of South Africa, uh, the the debate in Israel. The political constellations will not shift. I'm not suggesting pressure overnight gets converted into, okay, we'll withdraw, you win. Gosh, that's a shame. Um, nor am I suggesting that, that, that you, know, you ratchet the pressure up high enough, and I'm not making you know, a comparison, but you know, it doesn't work. Maximum pressure, I don't think, does work. But maximum impunity. I would argue, definitely has an impact on the political debate. And you will not see, until that impunity is eroded, you will not see a serious shift in the political conversation inside Israel. And what I'm suggesting is the Palestinians need to think about how to realign because that erosion of impunity probably um, will only happen once. Um, American impunity itself has been eroded once America. I, I think it's fascinating what we've seen in the last period um, around Ukraine, because I think here, you know, part of the reason the rest of the world has turned round, and there are different reasons. Sure, many have equities with, with with Russia, but part of the reason the rest of the world, not the West, the rest of the world has turned round and said, no, we will. Maybe we'll raise a hand with you in the UN, but we're not coming with you. Yes, many of them would say, yes, there is an act mm -hmm. of military aggression against a sovereign state with which we disagree. But when you get up on your soapbox and lecture us about values and your rules-based order, we're not buying it because... You are so selective in the application of that. We've all experienced it. And I do think that for many people, a default where you're saying, example, Palestine. Palestine is the most egregious example. And then the other thing is the world turns around and says, you never asked us one thing to oppose the military aggression, but you never asked us what we thought about you taking sanctioning measures, which have impacted us much more than they've impacted you when it comes to our food security, when mm -hmm. it comes to our debt, when it comes to our supply chains, where etc. I don't want to go into that, but I do think that, that there is a shift that is going. Okay, but if uh, let's play this out, and, and, and moreover, as you suggested, there's uh, what could be the harbinger of some displacement of American influence in the region by another player like China uh, as manifest in the uh, China's role 
however significant you think it actually was in in uh, in orchestrating rapprochement uh, or something like it between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But, you know, China is, you know, their foreign policy is not values based, which I think is in some ways one of its redeeming features. I mean, I think America's is too quote, values-based for its own good. And one, one thing uh, countries like about China is they're, they're not going to get a lot of lectures, you know. Um, and uh, but by the, by the same token, I would, you know, I would, uh, you know, I think China is going to tend to go where the power is in a given region. And the power uh, is, as I see it, with Israel and not the Palestinians. You know, I mean, Israel is a very, very, uh, again, prosperous, powerful state that has things it can offer, you know, what, what can the Palestinians in the West Bank offer to a, to a China to get China to really be on their side in a significant way. Now that, that could be of great rhetorical value for China. It could be that China wants to appeal to global audiences that would respect its support for the Palestinians. Uh, but unless, and, and it could also be, that there are governments in the region that feel uh, sufficiently aligned with the Palestinians to demand Chinese support for the Palestinians. But right now, that doesn't seem to be the case. The, the, the strongest, richest governments in the region, as we've said, the governments at least, as distinguished from their people, don't seem particularly on board with the Palestinian cause. So uh, I, the question is, let's suppose that uh, U.S. influence is displaced by, say, China's maybe by Russia's at some point in, in the future, um, or by some other power. Where's this, what's the scenario where that actually works toward a, a just solution of the Israel-Palestine problem? So, uh, first of all, let's acknowledge and, and, and make clear that what you said is correct. Israel, nuclear armed state, powerful, significant military, significant economic success, has developed a lot of the uh, spyware and cyber technology that many states are very happy to get their hands on and turn against their own people and their foes overseas. Um, significant successes. Now let's look at the realities in the Middle East. Something very interesting happened in the Qatar-hosted World Cup, World Football Cup, soccer. Um, this was the first opportunity that the Arab world had to offer its own public opinion, box box position on normalization. And what was remarkable at that occasion was everywhere you turned, there were Palestinian flags, there were Palestinian charts. Morocco, who, who had a rem remarkable footballing achievement at that tournament, getting into the semi-final, first ever um, African, let alone Arab state, to do so. Their team, and Morocco is just normalized with Israel, right? But just the, off the back of the Abraham Accords, because Trump recognized Western Sahara as being Moroccan. So the Moroccan team... In their big victories, they unfurled the Palestinian flag. So I think the what you see in the region is sure. You have regimes that are unaccountable, unanswerable, unrepresentative of their people, able to make these deals with Israel. But remember, 
Morocco was bribed. Sudan, which is a whole nother disaster, which fed into what we're seeing right now. The only time America ever did anything to influence developments was in Sudan, was to get Sudan to normalize with Israel. It's, it's criminal. But let me park that. They were either bribed by the Trump administration or the Israelis had something to offer them, but that's not where the public is. Now, Israel, because I do think that it is very dependent on this American relationship, despite everything it's done elsewhere, because only America will shield Israel, I think, from some of the pressure on the Palestine front. Only America has used its veto more times on this issue. Half the time the veto has been used, it's been on this issue. At, it's been at the UN Security Council. When at the, the UN when Security it... Council, exactly. So in that respect, all the good work that Israel did in laying the basis for a very strong relationship with China, which Israel did, is being severely challenged by what is happening in US-China relations. The one area where there was serious tension under Trump in the relationship with Israel was to get the Israelis to cancel certain major infrastructure projects that the Chinese had and to pull back from that, especially around the port in Haifa. So my assumption is that an interest-based expanded Chinese, and I'm not saying this happens tomorrow, expanded Chinese involvement in that part of the world would look at this and say, A, this is a source of instability. We don't like instability. What you're doing to the Palestinians has a ripple effect everywhere. And what goes on in Jerusalem, that could have a serious, we see it blow up in, in different places. This is not good. It, this, you know, it's, it's going to be a different rhetoric, but the policy in the end may be a more significant policy. And then you also have the situation around Iran. So I think in Israel, that is set on a certain path with the Palestinians that it cannot reverse at the moment, that is in a zero-sum position with Iran, and that has limited its options because of its level of dependence on America, given those two things, it will still manage to have some breakthroughs. Maybe there'll be another Arab state. Any Arab state that does this knows it has to look over its shoulder. Even the UAE have been unable to invite Netanyahu to visit recently because of what's going on, especially around Jerusalem. So I think this begins to stack up problems because Israel is not driven by enough of a realist adaptation to the changes in the world around it. Now, the crucial other ingredient to add to that is that all of this is happening while there is a Palestinian leadership in place, which is reliant on Israel, reliant on America, and therefore conspicuously cannot act in the Palestinian interest. And they're desperate to keep those guys in place because they know that what you said, that they're not popular in the Arab mm -hmm. world, that can change. You get a charismatic Palestinian leader in place, and I think uh, 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 one with a strategy, then I think you'll look around and many of these Arab states will have a, a real problem managing their equities on this issue. A cynic would say, if that charismatic uh, Palestinian can stay out of an Israeli prison, but uh, and, and out of the sights of an Israeli sniper. Yeah. But um, so listen, Daniel, we've been talking close to an hour. Um, as you know, uh, the way we often do these podcasts is we uh, do an hour of public conversation and then we go into overtime, continue talking. And, and the rest of the conversation is available to 
uh, non-zero members, that is paid subscribers to uh, the non-zero newsletter. You've been kind enough to say you'll stick around for a little while and talk some more. We'll drill down uh, further on these issues. Um, I want to say that uh, if, if you're not a paid subscriber, uh, you can either just go to the non-zero newsletter and Substack, sign up. You can also just click the link uh, in the show notes if you're on a podcast app right, right now. You'll go to the same place. Uh, and then once you're a non-zero member, you'll find a post corresponding to this where the full audio and video exists. But also at the in the upper right of that, uh, you'll see a place you can click to set up uh, your own podcast feed, which will thereafter be like a special version of the non-zero feed where all the bonus content will be, including the overtime sessions. Uh, and uh, that is the long versions of each podcast, including the overtime session, as well as some podcasts uh, that don't otherwise wouldn't um, show up at all. Uh, and including the, uh, you know, the Friday pair room and so on. Encourage people to do that, needless to say. Uh, but I'm also grateful to anyone who listened this far and isn't going to take that step. By the way, you can also become a non-paying subscriber to Non-Zero Newsletter if you want to do that. Daniel, before we adjourn to overtime, I want to um, ask you if there's anything you want to say uh, you know, just just to the audience that won't be with us for this next uh, segment, uh, by way of punctuating what you've said, clarifying what you've said, recanting anything. Uh, maybe I'll say one thing, which I can't almost feel I need to, to say these days when I talk about this issue. You've been very generous with your with the time you've given me to, to speak, uh, Robert. Um, which is why should anyone care when we may well be talking about a part of the world that is uninhabitable? Uh, in a generation's time under the, the, the path we're currently on vis-a-vis -vis climate change. And, and I, I'm thinking more about this. And uh, my first stab at answering that question is that what, what I've just been talking about, which is the exceptionalism, because some people accuse Israel of being held to a higher standard. And I, I think that's kind of got the thing on its head. And what I, what, what saddens me is, is the effort to hold Israel to a lower standard and the exceptionalism around this. And I, and I just feel that this is, this is an example where we are going to have to collectively, as, as a global community, come together on things where sides are stacked up in very different ways. And I think we're going to have to look at so many major questions of how we do global governance as we have mass migration and probably the need to, to bring in some major geoengineering um, moonshot. That exceptionalities like this are going to have to see their sunset. And I think if we can, if we can demonstrate on this issue, of course, it matters to Palestinians. It also matters to Israelis. And, and if they, they do become climate migrants, they're going to carry a, a historical experience with them. It matters that this kind of what those groups have called apartheid reality should not be able to be treated with indifference by the West uh, at this moment. And I think it does a huge disservice to the West that it allows this to happen. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think through some of this, but, but I, I would just kind of mention that point for people who, and actually, if you think that, you probably would have listened to, wouldn't have listened an hour anyway, but there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's, that's an excellent addition to the conversation. Um, so thank you. Uh, 
Uh, I want to now go into overtime. I want I want to ask you a question actually uh, that that will draw on your uh, your involvement in past Israel Palestine negotiations. Uh, but meanwhile, thanks everybody who's uh, uh, listened this far. Uh, I hope I hope uh, people decide to join us in overtime. And thank you, Daniel. I encourage people to uh, Google you and the U.S. Middle East Project and that recent testimony of yours in, uh, before the U.N. Security Council. Um, and uh, now we uh, will head into overtime. Thanks.